So far in this series, we've been looking at problems of the heart. But the truth of the matter is, the heart does not work alone. The heart works as part of a system, a cardiovascular system, with the rest of the body, including the arteries all over your body, the arteries in your head, the arteries in your hands, the arteries in your legs. Today we will be talking about what happens when these arteries are affected. Today we'll be talking about peripheral artery disease. Heart to Heart is a series made for you, the patient. We hope to better public health and help you really understand more about your heart. If you are suffering from heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or you really just want to learn more about your heart, then you should be listening to Heart to Heart with your hosts, the Yusuf Twins. We will delve into many topics across the field of cardiology to help you improve your health. Don't be confused. Be healthy. I'm Muhammad Yusuf, and our guest today is Dr. Dapa, an esteemed cardiologist, research workhorse, and professor for the Department of Surgery for West Virginia University, Charleston Division. Dr. Dapa has been serving the community of Charleston, West Virginia for decades. Thank you. So why don't we just dive right in? So our topic is, again, peripheral vascular disease. So why don't we just start out talking about what peripheral vascular disease is? So peripheral vascular disease means any of the atherosclerotic process or any of the disease process that involves the arteries outside of the heart. So any of the blockages in the arteries and the veins that's outside of the heart arteries and the veins is called peripheral vascular disease. Okay, wonderful. What kind of classic signs and symptoms do we see with people who have peripheral vascular disease? So each artery, when it gets blocked or when it gets narrowed or becomes large, you have different signs and symptoms. Most of the common terminology that gets overlapped is when you say peripheral vascular disease, people assume it's the blockages to the lower extremities. And that is true. That's the most common one. And if you want to go with the most common signs and symptoms, the vascular disease involving the lower extremities, patients will have most common is called claudication. So claudication is pain in the calf muscles or the thigh or the hips and buttocks, depending upon the level of the occlusion. Usually pain is noted one level below the occlusion. If you have a superficial femoral artery blocked up, you usually get the calf pain. Similarly, if you have an artoiliac occlusion, you have pain in the buttocks or the hips. So similarly, if you have any blockages or the stenosis in the carotid artery, most of them remain asymptomatic, but sometimes they can give symptoms of TIA and CVA. In terms of dilatation of the arteries, if the artery in the abdominal iota becomes dilated, they do remain asymptomatic, but when it's large enough, it may rupture and cause death. In terms of the veins, venous stenosis may cause some problem like leg swelling, but venous dilatation also can cause venous leg swelling, depending upon the superficial or deep veins. And if the deep veins gets completely thrombosed, you get deep vein thrombosis. So there's a lot of little subtopics within peripheral vascular disease. Yes, it's very large. In my own research, I found that it's progressive disease. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, yeah. So can you talk to me about some of the varying degrees of peripheral vascular disease? 
So starting from head to toe, we covered briefly about carotid arteries, but if you go a little bit more cranial, if any of the occlusive disease happens in the middle cerebral artery or anterior cerebral artery or vertebral arteries, they tend to cause a significant damage to the patient, resulting in a massive stroke or a TIA. And as you know, stroke is one of the most disabling symptoms in the United States. It stands number one cause of disability in the world also. So that's in the cerebral arteries. And going down to the neck, if you have blockages in the arm arteries, depending upon if the patient has a coronary artery bypass graft surgery, they can get cardiac ischemia if the mammary artery is used. Otherwise, also, they can get left arm pain, dizziness, depending upon the supply to the vertebral artery. And occlusions to the aorta can cause hip pains and claudication. And if the leg arteries get embolized to the legs, you can get acute limb ischemia, where there's a high chance of limb loss, about 40 to 50% can lose leg. If the disease progresses to a stage of gangrene in the leg, untreated, most of them have a very high chance of amputation. And also, even if you treat them, the long-term natural history of peripheral vascular disease is not good. At 10 years, there's a 50% chance or 45 to 50% chance of death. Usually, it's cardiovascular death. Well, it's a high number. That is a very high number because most of us talk about high mortality, heart failure or dialysis, and also not to make other disease processes less important. For example, the patients with breast cancer or people with prostate cancer, we talk about the 10-year mortality. If somebody has a Duke B classification of colon cancer, we say the mortality is about 22% at five years. I'm giving an approximate number. So everybody makes a promise to change their lifestyle. You know, they quit their smoking, eating habits. They go to church and try to lead a better, healthy life. But critical limb ischemia, that means when patients have gangrene in the leg or a rest pain, the five-year mortality is much higher. It's 40 to 60% depending upon what are the other comorbidities like diabetes. However, when a patient comes to the office, including me, we may not tell the patients every time, hey, at five years, there's only half a chance that you'll be alive. So we tend to neglect that important natural history, natural progression of the disease. And even for a claudicant, once peripheral vascular disease is diagnosed, at 10 years, there's a high mortality, which is 45%. So we do need to pay attention. And they don't die just because they lose their leg. It's a combination of things. Their mobility comes down, their cardiovascular risk goes up, they have cardiovascular death. So what you're saying is over the course of 10 years during which this disease progresses is sort of a stepping stone of one thing leads to another yes. and ultimately leading in about 40-50% mortality. Yes. Is there any primary causes or primary reasons for things that cause peripheral vascular disease? Very few primary etiology like congenital absence of an artery or patients who have congenital anomalies leading to aberrant arteries like sciatic artery that can replace a superficial femoral artery and cause peripheral vascular disease. Those primary causes are very less. Most majority of them are secondary to atherosclerotic factors, and most of the risk factors are the garden variety, which is hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol, and tobacco use. Also, immobility leads to it. The major ones that we worry about is the diabetes and the smoking. So these are the two big triggers. Yeah, because those are somewhat preventable. Yes, both are. Most of the peripheral vascular disease is preventable. Okay. So how is peripheral vascular disease diagnosed? Peripheral vascular disease, most diagnosis lies in the history and physical examination. Patients give history. Unfortunately, the history is not always consistent, and it's not the patient is trying to give you a different answer. The classic symptoms are seen only between 20 to 40% of the cases. So majority, 60% of them have atypical symptoms. 
for example, claudication pain, patients may come and say, I have pain when I'm walking, but sometimes I get it at rest too. So immediately people will assume the patient doesn't have claudication. It's all from the back pain or a back injury. But that is not really true. Patients with back injury, patients with spinal claudication can still have vascular claudication, but you have to differentiate the symptoms and the overlapping can be there. So you should still treat them for peripheral disease with maximizing risk factor reduction and then get some more diagnostic imaging. So physical exam-wise, when you palpate the pulses in the leg, for example, if you have an absent pulse in the femoral artery and you have a bruit, you know there is an iotoiliac disease. If you have an absent dopopliteal pulse that you know there is SFA disease. You have absent dorsalis pedis supposed to be a posterior tibial, it's usually higher up is the occlusion. And when you see an ulcer and gangrene, that's a no-brainer. Sometimes diabetic people can have gangrene with uh, intact blood supply to the leg. That's because of the microcirculation or osteomyelitis. But those will be rare. Most of them will have atherosclerotic disease. And when you examine an acute limb ischemia, a patient has a pale leg and sensory loss, motor loss, they're not able to move the leg. And that should be an acute limb ischemia and you shouldn't think about neuropathy and these things. The worst physical exam that we all miss is few of them that can be catastrophic in peripheral vascular diseases with critical limb ischemia called rest pain. What it means is circulation is really bad at multi-level. Patient may have autoiliac stenosis or an occlusion, femoral artery occlusion, and a below-knee artery occlusion. So that patient over a period of time will start to develop redness of the leg and pain and swelling when the patient goes to bed. That's because when you raise the feet above your heart, all the blood goes back towards the chest cavity and then decreased blood supply to the leg. Patient gets severe pain and redness. So the patient figures it out. If they dangle the feet to the ground, they get better. Oh, okay. And they'll start to do that for a few weeks and then they come to the emergency room. We see the redness and the first thing we do is treat them for cellulitis, give them antibiotics and go send them home. Sometimes whether it's placebo or maybe the antibiotics work to prevent a little bit of superficial ulcers, the patient feels better. Then they continue to see the same pattern. Now the leg swelling becomes big swelling because they're no longer sleeping in the bed, they're sleeping in a recliner. So they come back with the leg swelling. The next thing, the emergency room and including physicians like us, what we do is we do the venous duplex. Venous circulation will be okay. We'll say there's no deep vein thrombosis in the patient home. Next thing the patient comes is with a toe ulcer. Unfortunately, with a toe ulcer or a wound, patient may end up with a general surgery or to a wound clinic or to a podiatry, and they keep debriding the wound. So by the time they come to you, it's a full-blown gangrene. But if you track back, majority of the patients did show up at a different hospital or even at your hospital with a different physician or somewhere. So this whole process should have been caught much early because once a gangrene starts, it's hard to fight with it and also you have a high chance of limb loss. Okay. So physical examination becomes very important and a good astute history is very important. Okay, so this whole image that you've painted, one way you think that it can be helped to be prevented is by being really focused at the very beginning when you're doing the history. History, and I think at medical students' level itself, we need to increase more awareness of peripheral vascular disease, and we need more didactic curricular lectures when they start to do the residency and the fellowship, and the awareness is very important. The other thing is simple tests like ankle brachial index. That can help you to screen the patients. It's a very effective screening tool. You put the blood pressure cuffs in both arms and both legs, check the blood pressure. You take the highest pressure between the legs and divide that by the highest brachial pressures and you get what is called ankle brachial index. If it's more than 0.9, it's normal. Less than that is abnormal. Less than 0.4 is critical. So that it should... looks, does it look for differences in blood pressure? looks basically for decrease in blood pressure as the blood moves out of the heart cavity. If your blood is pumping at blood pressure of 120 from the heart cavity, it should be a little bit high in the legs because of the gravity, because of the higher resistance in the leg. Okay. 
but it should not be too high if you have a blood pressure of 120 the pressure in the pedal artery should be 120 130 so if you take 130 divided by 120 the ankle brachial number will be 1 but on the other hand if the left leg pressures are 80 and the upper arm pressures are 120 so 80 divided by 120 the ABI will be 0.75 so that diagnoses you with mild peripheral vascular disease. But what it shows you also is it's one level of occlusion. Either it's iotoiliac or femoral. So it has its own prognostic factor. If you follow a patient with ABA of 0.7 to 0.9, their mortality at 10 years is about 20 to 30%. If you have an ABA of 0.4, their mortality is 60% at 4 years. 10 years, sorry. So the number of ABIs that keeps coming down, their mortality keeps going up. Wow. So this ABI is useful as a prognostic factor, and please let me know if I have it wrong here. The lower the number, does that mean the more plaque there is? More worse the disease is, plaque to an occlusion, yes. Okay. There's few caveats as we go deeper down. ABI can be normal and still have significant disease that happens in patients whom you can't occlude the arteries. And those patients are patients with diabetes, patients with renal failure, and old elderly patients where the artery is calcified and you can't occlude the arteries. But those are very few. Okay. Can peripheral vascular disease be treated once it's begun? Absolutely. Treat one is prevention and the second one is treatment. So most of them are risk factors for atherosclerosis. So patient education is very important. Not to scare them for unknown reason, but to tell them the facts about it. And the preventable causes, as we discussed, the biggest one is the smoking. So smoking cessation becomes big and important. And it's not about reducing the number of cigarettes. It's not about switching from cigarettes to a vapor or switching tobacco to marijuana. All smoking is bad, so they need to get rid of it. Second is the preventive factors such as aspirin, basic things, and then beta blockers if the patient has heart disease, cholesterol reduction with statins, and that should be an automatic irrespective of your cholesterol level, it should be on statins once you have peripheral vascular disease. And then diabetic people need education, and exercise is very important. Patients come with the blockage, you push them to walk, there's collaterals that are recruited, body's own TPA starts to develop, they start to feel better. An easy way for residents and fellows to remember for prevention is A, B, C, D, A is for aspirin, B for beta blocker if they have heart disease, C is for cholesterol, D is for diabetes, and E is education for exercise. Wonderful. It comes across in my head that if somebody has peripheral vascular disease, let's just say in the legs they have claudication, and then we tell them to try to exercise, how can they get over that barrier? Maybe it's, so I, if, I don't know if it's difficult for them to That's a really exercise. good point because patients get confused, the referral physicians get confused. So supervised exercise program as shown in the trial, uh, one of the largest trials that was done was called CLEVER. Clever was a claudication trial where patients were made to exercise and then other arm was made to exercise plus 10 and the exercise plus medication was another arm. Exercise plus medication was really better than just putting stents and that makes sense because you're going to treat the patient in whole not just putting small pieces of stents. So exercise when they say supervised exercise program it's patients who have ability to walk and who can walk on a treadmill for 1.5 mile per hour and somebody should watch them at least 8 to 10 minutes for each session 2 to 3 sessions a week but however we can do any exercise is better than no exercise so studies have shown people who have an amputation if they do arm exercises the ergonomics will help in improving circulation to the whole body so what I tell the patients is get out and walk every hour sitting is one of the new risk factors for atherosclerotic disease the number of hours we sit at a place becomes a risk factor for heart disease. Same way for peripheral vascular disease. So try to walk every hour for even 10 to 20 steps. 
throughout the day you get 100 to 200 steps that's useful but if a patient can go out and walk with the family alone push himself to walk until he can't walk anymore then get some rest then walk that will improve ideal would be to have in a place where there is supervised access program where you can walk on the treadmill for 1.5 mile per hour for a few minutes unfortunately medicare hasn't completely reimburses for these kind of procedures there's been some approval but not complete approval so you need to have another diagnosis to get the patient to cardiac rehab somebody with an associated chest pain diabetic patients lung patients so it's important to really get yourself moving yes okay well i think that wraps it up for today's episode on peripheral vascular disease i'm mohammed yusuf and Thank you so much and if I can wrap this up and say for physicians residents and everybody to keep it in mind our goal is to avoid amputation whatever measures you can do to avoid amputation that saves the lives of the patients nothing good comes out of an amputation if you lose one leg for a period of time you lose the other leg due to immobility and worsening of the disease and the die of heart disease and stroke at very high rates so the key is to keep the leg attached to the patient thank you so much If you are curious to learn more about your heart and more importantly what you can do to keep it in great shape you can find more informative episodes like this one by searching heart to heart on Apple Podcasts or heart to heart cast on YouTube